kind of act as these super anxious teenagers where we have to show people that we have status and value and belonging. And that therefore we buy huge cars. Like we we would never bike through the rain because then we would come to work maybe sweaty. Or we need to fly on that crazy trip. We eat the biggest steak we can from the rarest cows. Like we we need those pictures to kind of say that we are important people. And I think that's very big thing what's killing the planet. So I think that what Extinction Rebellion and Greta Thunberg and these movements are doing is that they're saying that they're, they're calling out for what it is. It is just sheer stupidity. Hello and welcome back to the Core Matter Podcast, a series of conversations about how people connect, engage and participate in today's hyperspeed world. Let's start this episode with some great news. Great news is we're back. We haven't been here for almost four months, which means you haven't heard from us in this little podcast feed or wherever you listen to podcasts and our conversations since June 2019. That's a very long time. But we have done a lot of conversations since then that we're now releasing every week. And number one is Hampus Jakobson. So this is episode 22. My name is Severin Matusek, and today's guest on the show is Hampus Jakobson. There's a lot of stuff to learn in this podcast. We talk about Hampus's upbringing as the youngest of five children in Sweden. We talk about the story behind his company that he sold to BlackBerry. We talk about nuclear energy. We talk about communities and we talk about people. And we talk about how we can all contribute to solving the climate crisis together and why, obviously, this is not going to be an easy task. So here's the Cool Matter podcast with Hampus Jakobsen. Hampus, I'm very glad to finally have you on the on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a it's a pleasure. So maybe we I tell a little story about how we got to know each other. Yeah, <laughs> how did we? Well, I think about three years ago uh, we were in touch when I just left my old company and you were writing a, a medium piece about communities and that's mm -hmm. where we collaborated on and that was a lot of fun. And I think then we we met each other a few times and I think like. If I could describe you in, in a few words, which is very hard, but I think you are the most rational person I know in a way that a lot of us are rational people, but we often act irrationally. But from observing what you do, I feel like if you have realized something makes sense, you do it. Thanks. I think that's actually, it's funny. You realize, I think it's a good description of realizing who you are when you can figure out what's a compliment and what's not a compliment. And I mean, like, I feel that the really strong compliment, but I think some people would maybe not consider being irrational as a compliment. I really think it's an amazing compliment. So thank you very okay. much. Yeah, good. But maybe to introduce you, maybe you can give our listeners a little roundup of the life of Hampus Jakobson of the last 15 to the yeah, 20 exactly. years. Yeah, so I think the easiest way, this is horrible, but it's the easiest way is actually have to start slightly earlier because it's so much defined who I am, but I'm going to do it super briefly. So I'm, I'm the fourth child. I, I have three older brothers that are eight, nine, and 11 years older than I am. Uh, so I kind of more or less grew up with five parents. And the thing is, when you grow up with five parents, it's very weird because um, I sort of very grew up much with two different things in my life very big. One is that everybody around me were, of course, much smarter, stronger, faster, everything than, than I were, right? So I always had to, I wouldn't say compete, but I had to work hard to just be seen, be heard, be like, you know, appreciated. Not appreciated, I mean, I, I had a great child in that sense, but it was, you know, if somebody comes home and said, we did this amazing thing at school and you're seven, like what did you do? Yeah, we drew stuff and like played soccer. 
So it's not very interesting. So that like made me have to be really, really good at thinking about what others in other people's minds and what people are interested in. Also because when you have older siblings, I think anybody who's a younger sibling knows this and everybody's an older sibling is that when you're a younger sibling, you just really want to watch the movies with your older sibling and their friends. When they're playing a board game, you really want to be there at the table. And if you're an older sibling, you know that you absolutely don't want your pesky little brother or sister there. So I became, from around five or four years old, I became completely obsessed about how other people work. Like what's on their mind and how can I try to be in the room when they're doing the thing and get them to say, sure. And that, like, that was my first school. And I think it was, I was obsessed about it. The second other thing that I think was amazing was I grew up in this weird kind of mental greenhouse because when you are that much younger than everyone else, I, can, I kind of had a weird situation of both being the only child but also not being the only child at all, of course. So I think my parents and my quote-unquote five parents, they always were like, yeah, do whatever. Like, you know, oh, I want to shoot with a BB gun. They were like, yeah, it's in the cupboard. It's like, I'm five. Or like, you know, I'm climbing up this tree, and then it's like, somebody's, where's Hampus? It's like, I don't know. And then somebody's like, oh, he's up in that tree. And they're like, come down, it's dinner. And I was like, I'm afraid I can't get down. I Like, I'm panning up here. Yeah, both Marks and Reyes made it. Like, it's going to be fine. And like, I just had to solve everything on my own. And I think that was an amazing education because I felt so safe, but at the same time, always were way beyond what I was competent to do, like way, way beyond. Um, and I think that that re those two things really defined me as a person a lot. I'm really, really comfortable being in situations where I have no clue. I really don't understand. Um, but on the other end, I am so obsessed about everybody else in the room, what's going on in their mind and how I can make them kind of include me. And not like... The good thing, because I grew up in a very kind of loved uh, environment, it's not that I'm sort of seeking acceptance from like a belonging acceptance. It's not that I was like, listen to me because I'm worth something. Because I grew up in an environment where it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You're, a little, you're the little cute small one. So I didn't like need to see, seek the kind of confirmation that I had value or needed to had a confirmation to belong. But I was, instead, I could just ask the stupid question. I could be the person who says, so like, why don't we do, like, how does the sun work then? Like, can't we build a power plant that worked like the sun? And then everybody's room was like, it's a child's question, but it's not that bad idea. There actually are projects that are about fusion. And like, my dad is a nuclear physicist, started talking about it. And it's like super interesting that it's allowed if you're seven. And it's, it's not allowed if you're 20. If you're 20, you'd say, what? You went to university. You must know it's impossible. So I think it's, that, that was an amazing education, honestly. And I think that then if you sort of just super fast forward to my first job is that when I was in university, I did internships everywhere because I was really obsessed about just trying to get to different places and get to learn stuff by both like applying my knowledge. And it came from a random thing that I, I'll save you a lot of time and just say that uh, like from another reason I got into that. And that from another completely random reason, long story short, made me start a company with, with five of my friends. And that company was an art project. We essentially were going to build. We're going to build a large artist installation, and then some of us are going to do uh, special effects for movie, and some people are going to do compression algorithms. Just completely three disparate projects. We started this company together. That company became randomly became a user interface software company, which randomly became the absolutely world's leader on that, and shipped in around twelve percent of the world's phones per year from Nokia, Samsung, Motorola, and Sony Ericsson. So. And like the world shipped around a billion phones around that time. And it was just completely crazy how we became like such a key player in that ecosystem. And then completely by chance, we ended up designing Android for Google, which is also completely absurd how we were like, we're the ones that were most suited in the world for that, which was, I mean, completely random. 
Uh, and of course, not random as in stochastic random, but like it had to do with who we were 10 years earlier and 10 years earlier and 10 years earlier. And again, those things are very hard to affect. And then from that, then we were acquired by BlackBerry. And BlackBerry were the leading smartphone manufacturer in the world back then, but they had kind of gotten on an old technology they needed to modernize. So they acquired us to help them modernize the whole user experience because they were like the corporate play. And they, re they really realized that we can't be corporate and dry. We have to be safe and secure, but also kind of easy to use and consumer friendly. And so they acquired the company to have us join that. We were 180 people. And when they, at time of acquisition, they suddenly midst that realized, the last day actually realized that they had no idea what I were going to do. And then they asked me, oh, do you want to run mergers and acquisition for us, like acquire companies? And I had no idea. But as I said, I'm very comfortable with not understanding stuff. So I was like, I understood what they meant, but I didn't understand what that meant for me on a daily basis and what I had to learn very quickly. So I said yes. And then did that for two years and it was I mean, the best education, what you can do at a corporate, because if you work at a mergers and acquisition, you have to interface with all the different things that the company does, figure out what works, what doesn't, what do we need to 10x improve. You get to talk to the CEO and the strategy, whatever you want. And then when you want to do something, uh, people say, absolutely, you can do it if you can do it for less than $150 million, which is like, what? It suddenly becomes absurd. So it, it really became like being beamed up from a little you know, boat in the middle of the sea, which kind of a startup feels like you're in the sea and you're kind of part of the sea, but you're a little boat up to the spaceship, which I think if you're, if you work inside like Google or IBM or Microsoft or Amazon or, or BlackBerry at the time, you're suddenly this humongous thing that can decide how the waves are going to run much more efficiently. So I got to be there for two years, which was amazing. Then started another company, which was super interesting, did that for four years and then uh, got full time into deciding I would just want to invest. So then since then, I have just completely been focused as an investor. And I've started with some side projects like co-working spaces, uh, startup accelerators, or startup like collaboration systems, stuff like that. But those essentially have always been an idea for me and a friend. We started talking about it. Then either the friend started running it and I kind of, you know, helped start it. And then like was like, quote unquote, advisor. Like most of the people I started with are way smarter than I am. So they didn't need an advisor, but I helped them in the beginning to kind of get going. And I think, again, it becomes back from... I'm so comfortable with not understanding, which means that in the beginning when you start something, most people, like, it's just hard. Like, you're just like, I don't know what to do. But so many people love taking um, a prototype and saying, oh, let's make this good. And I think so many people say, I love creating prototypes, but it's very different from going from a completely, you know, tabula rasa, clean slate, where you don't even know why you're doing it. And I love that. I love thinking, as you said, I think it's partly to me being rational. I love thinking, what is actually the problem and then just sitting there in the dark with myself lonely and feeling horrible what the problem actually is and realizing there is kind of one obvious thing to fix or I go out and interview 100 people and they realize that well there's one obvious fix that just means I have to do that like and and I just have to do it it's not that I can say okay I know the solution and now I'll just write a blog post and move on uh, I'll just okay I'll have to do it and sometimes the solution is like a blog post if it's something not something I can do it's just like an explanation but if something I can do I usually just do it and over time I've invested in a bit more than 100 companies because I've sort of really really enjoyed that and and sort of I think it's amazing to be able to work with such amazing and ambitious people as founders are yeah I mean one has to add uh from my perspective that you're obviously I think you're one of the most sought after angel investors in in Europe a lot of people want to work with you, I guess, because of that curiosity and of course, because of that help that you can actually give startups. Yeah, I mean, I think there are so many great investors. I think that, I think what I bring to the table is that two things. I think I come in 
I mean, I'm extremely curious. And I think that means I come in with an open mind and I ask so many questions. And I feel a lot of times that people, even if they're super experts in this in the area and maybe worked at it for th- four years building a company, they might have, a, have really thought about why they're doing it or what the problem actually, actually, actually is or what the other alternative solutions that the customer or user might have. They, they, they have a product, they have users, whatever, but they might not realize that you know, they're a social network for dog walking and they never realized that Netflix is their biggest customer because the alternative is you stay inside and you just want Netflix, whatever, that strange example. But I think, so I'm the curious person that comes in and I ask him a hundred questions and I feel a lot of times people in the midst of that conversation just says, yeah, I've never thought about that. And I think it's a strange situation. It's like, I still am that seven-year-old that asked the question. But the difference is because I'm 40, people weirdly enough respect me to take the question seriously. Yeah. Uh, so they, they, they think it's, oh, he knows something I don't understand. So I have to answer the question really smartly. And then while they're doing that, in the midst of that sentence, they realize, yeah, why are people actually doing this? Or what's the goal of myself doing this company? Do I want to be the CEO because I want to personally grow? Or do I want to do this because I want to be wealthy? Or do I want to do this because I want to solve the problem and I'm fine with just being a developer? Like, why am I actually doing this? And so I think that's a big, big, big part of what I, why I enjoy helping people. And also why I really enjoy helping super ambitious people. Because I think that's the thing that makes me obsessed when it gets very, very borderline too, too crazy. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the things that need to be done. Yeah. <laughs> because that was that, that's what I wanted to get at with my introduction because I observed that after doing a hundred plus investments over the last few years, you have decided earlier this year, you're only going to invest in technologies that are going to help save the planet. Yeah. And more specifically on climate. I think there are many things. I think that I I view it as a stack. So I think that if you look at a stack of, um, and I think it's not a Maslowian stack. I think it's more like, um, it's more like a humanitarian or, or stack. So I think at the at the top of that stack, you have the Maslowian ones. Like you have the, oh, let's make sure they're entertained and they're like well-closed and respected and like all of the things that like, all of the entertainment things we can come up with. And, and like, there's so many quasi-entertainment today, like, you know, Instagram and Netflix and everything. Like they kind of create these social networks and connection between people, like whatever, but they're kind of in a sense entertainment. They don't provide food or shelter. And uh, they do provide other values, but also other problems. But if you go down that stack, you get to things like liberty, democracy, rights, and minority groups, mental health, physical health, um, I mean, anything from pathological to other things, violence, those things are really amazing. And I think there are a lot of people who are now creating like amazing mental health startups. I had a long stint where I was completely obsessed by digital health and did a lot of things in that. I think the problem is now that I think the last two or three years, I think it's become obvious for the world or many people in the world that climate is going to be a negative driver to those so mental health, liberty, minority groups, all of those things are getting a lot worse if climate gets worse. Or, of course, not climate, but if if we have less land, arable land, that means we have less food. If the planet gets hotter, that don't, not only means that the sea level rises and we lose land and people will need to leave from where they are, but the other problem is that it leads to extreme drought. And extreme drought usually leads all the time, leads to civil war. Uh, I mean, anything from the Arabian Spring to um, ISIS Dech were created more or less by, by drought which increase the price of food or extreme quick urbanization as in, in Syria. And we have a lot of people gathering credit very quickly. A lot of people move into cities and they're poor, just lost their land, they lost their food. Then suddenly they have a lot of quote unquote strong men. And you like, you know, I learned from Bolsonaro, Trump, 
but also the, the nicest people like look to people who tell them the truth and like the hard facts. We have to go to war. We have to fight these. There's an easy answer. Either you're in it or you're not. And I think when community building, there's such a clear community because when you're at level four community building to build your us, you need to build with them. But that level five community building is when you realize that it's much better to not build with them, but just be a very, very big us. The problem is like, what do you do if you have a very peaceful society of a level five community, and then suddenly people, some people become very, very stressed and you, somebody needs to come in. They don't trust the president or king or whatever in the country anymore. Then somebody needs to come in and point at the dem, them. The them were the Jews in the last, you know, 500 years. The them were the so many other things. And I think now the, the them can be anything. Like the them in the U.S., the them can be the Muslims. Uh, it can be essentially anybody who's not with the U.S. Nationalism is not a super rise. And I think the problem is nationalism is super rise not because we've grown more stupid. And I don't think actually nationalism is on the super rise just because of social media. Social media has made it worse because it's connected people together in a way that's not very good. And it's made us very superficial and kind of look at like more and more superficial fe features and less of like what the content of people are. But I think the problem is that when we're in a very stressed environment, we, we, need, we need to have, make a strong us. And usually by creating a very clear borderline and saying, saying we're the us because, hey, we're not the them. The them, they're the problem. And, you know, it's amazing to be, feel part of a group. And when you're afraid, like the family, the clan, the country, the religion, these are amazing we's. The problem with those collectives are that they're, they're very, very bad because you have to get at them. Do you think that the climate crisis is an opportunity for human mankind to unite again? Uh, I wish. For I a wish. Shared the, cause? I think there's there's a good and bad side. I think the honest answer is, I think the problem is like to unite people are under stress. We needed them, and I think the problem with the the climate crisis, the them is us. So that's, the, that's the, a very interesting point. So yeah. that's really the problem. I think that it was been so different if it was aliens. And I think that, I mean, that's why I feel like um, Shishin Liu's books are amazing. I think that um, uh, Remembrance of Earth trilogy, when the, there's, there's an alien race coming and invading humanity, and it's coming in 400 years. So you have such a clear them. It's them, and we have to band together. The problem with climate crisis is like anything from, you know, the way we used to build industries to us not able to change the way we believe about the world. So I think that that's the problem with climate. I think you can bring up so many things. Um, so in, energy is a massive problem in climate. Around 60%, depends exactly how you count, but energy production is a big problem. And the problem is like, there are essentially three ways of looking at it. I think. There's the kind of go back to where we came from way, which I think is a, a very stupid way. I think it's amazing, wonderful when people do it, but I don't think it works. So people say, why don't we just live as we did in the 15th century? So let's just each produce our own food. Let's only travel when there's wind in our direction. Let's only, you know, uh, whatever. Let, let's just use windmills to, you know, figure out our grains. The problem is, like, we're just too many people. That works amazingly well in a planet that has, like, a fourth of the population. There are too many people. Urban areas. Like, people, it's okay if you're willing to live as people lived in the 14th century. And the problem is nobody is. Like, less than 1% are willing to live as the, like we did 500 years ago. So I think that is I think that is a horrible way of thinking I think because like the the belief is just not compatible with how humans work. The second belief I think is then to just go okay we've seen how centralized energy production so coal uh, oil uh, nuclear are really really bad because coal and oil yeah fossil fuels nuclear hey chernobyl fukushima 
Harrisburg. We don't need to talk about it. So we need decentralized production. Decentralized production sounds really cool. Like it sounds rebellious. Like I'm going to produce my own electricity. We're going to build solar farms, wind farms, geothermic. Like geothermic is actually centralized. But like we're going to create these technologies that are going to create energy all over the country. The problem with these are two problems. Number one, while they're intermittent, like water is not, but most parts of the world doesn't have enough water, like floods or rivers that allow you to, to actually use water. Uh, Nordics have, but most other countries don't. So the problem is that you don't know when you get the energy. So you need to store it. The other problem is like the grids we have built, they're not built for decentralized uh, energy production in that way. So we need to rewire all the grids. And doing that, we probably need to change that infrastructure, but that is a massive financial project and also a mindset problem. So I think renewables are amazing. I really wish we could move forward faster on wind, on solar and everything, but they're very inefficient. Also like on land area and on materials. So there is a kind of a horrible, obvious solution, which is next generation nuclear, so advanced nuclear. So both fission and fusion. Fission being splitting atoms, exactly what happened in Chernobyl. The thing is, there has been the last 30 years, even though that most fission researchers have been hiding somewhere, um, there has been a massive advancements. And like companies all the way from Google to like others have done massive research in fission. And there's a resurgence of fission research. And fission is probably going to look very, very clean. You can make stuff that are very, very small. Like you can run like car-sized things because usually of military uses. Like because like people are needed to do that for military. And there are certain countries in the world that realize this. For example, Canada. So the region of Ontario in Canada is now like pushing forward nuclear massively. And on the government being super iterative with companies that are doing nuclear. Um, then the other for alternative is fusion. Fusion is clean, cleaner, because it doesn't have the problem with waste. Um, advanced fusion has less waste, but it still has radioactive components, which are really bad. And the problem with fusion is fusion is like, you know, from Captain Marvel kind of things. So we just, we just don't believe it's going to work. Uh, and therefore, we're not spending the money. But I think that the problem there is like, one, how we do spend the money on doing fusion research and fusion engineering and things. And there are amazing startups being built in that space. The other problem with fission is how do we get people to realize that Chernobyl did not happen because fission is a bomb. Chernobyl happened because people were like super lazy about how they did stuff. I mean, there's an, the amazing HBO documentary slash TV series was amazing to show that the problem is not that nuclear reactors are unsafe. It's the problem is like how they're run uh, and like the, the lies involved in that. The problem is like, how do we change our energy grid? And energy production and energy storage is something you just have to invest in massively. And the sad part is that the greener party you are, the more negative you are to something that starts with the word nuclear. So you would say, as a rational thinker, having thought through the problem that nuclear energy is the future. Yeah, I think that I think that solar, wind are amazing. We should absolutely invest massively in those. They're really, really good. They're getting down in price. But if we're going to create the amounts of energy we need, we will need to keep the nuclear plants that countries have open longer. And we need to invest in fusion and actually make sure that that takes off. And realize that fusion is no longer the comic books uh, of the 1980s. It's no longer kind of a magazine. It actually is pretty close on some certain things. And I think we're going to be on net positive fusion production within 10 years. And then I think that we're going to be on the engineering challenge of scaling those and, you know, just as Fission, like, you know, you need to build a big plant. Yeah. Um, so I think I would, and I think just as you said in the road, I think it's just pure rationalism. If you just start drilling down, energy is the problem. We can't have intermittent intermittent energy production. And that means if we don't create amazing battery technologies and 
that's really, really tricky. And it's also very unenvironmentally to kind of mine cobalt and lithium. So the problem is how do we create as much energy, quote unquote, on tap as we want? Yeah, then we have nuclear, right? And nuclear is extremely unpopular due to what happened in the 80s and 90s. And it, or it feels extremely over futuristic. And I think any problem we can solve, I think just let's look at it. Okay. What do you, th going back to the argument of us versus them, yeah. there is no them. So you have now outlined an approach towards the technological approach to, to fixing things. Do you also see an approach towards a mindset change? You, you mentioned like, okay, back, back to living in the, like in the 15th yeah. century is not an option. I agree I with that. So. But what we see right now is, you know, people uniting ar around the world for this cause, people taking to the streets again, new movements forming like Extinction Rebellion and so on. What do you think? Will they have an impact? Absolutely. I, th I think it's amazing. And I think that Extinction Rebellion, Greta Thunberg, many of these movements I think are amazing. I think that even if we can't or shouldn't maybe nuclear, like get her back to 14th, 15th century, I think what we should do is obviously realize that celebrating your 30th birthday on the Maldives is just stupidity. Like I just, like you, there's so many things amazing in life that are probably a bike ride from where you are. And I think you fleeing where you are, I think the, because of mental health issues, and I'm not saying clinical mental health issues, because, but because we need to take that picture on that beach. Uh, we need to show that we've been in Bali. We, we kind of act as these super anxious teenagers where we have to show people that we have status and value and belonging. And that therefore we buy huge cars. Like we, we would never bike through the rain because then we would come to work maybe sweaty or we would, we need to fly on that crazy trip. We eat the biggest steak we can from the rarest cows. Like we, we, we need those pictures to kind of say that we are important people. And I think that's very big thing. What's killing the planet. So I think that what Extinction Rebellion and Greta Thunberg and these movements are doing is that they're saying that they're, they're calling out for what it is. It is just sheer stupidity. And I think the problem with a lot of cultural shifts is that uh, the generation who is not up for change, who are in power, they need to uh, sort of give power to somebody younger. And I think that it used to be 100, 200 years ago that people were not in power that long. They died. And as they say with, with um, scientific revolutions, scientific revolutions usually happen one funeral at a time because that means the tenured professor, professor passes away and finally the people underneath him or her can get up and actually say what the professor said was wrong because now they're dead. Um, the problem now is that people stay in quote-unquote business much longer. So the moguls that sit and decide things, they're much older. They were not passed the baton because, hey, we have a super healthy population. We can live and work till we 70, which also means that the younger voice is not being heard. So I think the reason now in like the last two or three years, we have people taking the streets. We have people blocking things. We have people like, I mean, literally teenagers, uh, I mean, getting the attention of the biggest magazine in the world are because like they have to take such drastical things. They really have to get the older generation to actually understand they have to act. So I think it's going to be a huge effect. I think that. There's no company in the world who is not thinking about how they're going to live in this new era. There are huge banks that are now shorting stocks that are fossil fuel stocks because they think that there's a big risk that there's a carbon taxation coming uh, or a bigger carbon taxation. And if the carbon taxation would increase, that suddenly means that if you're a coal plant uh, or a big steel plant, like you can't, your business, you're out of business overnight. So then if you're a banker and own stock in these, you want to start selling them. Or even more interestingly, you start to short them, saying, hey, I'll bet money on the fact that these are going to go down. And the good thing about the horrible capitalistic system we have created 
and quotes around the horrible there, is the fact that when people start to not believe that something will work and short it, that means that the money starts moving away from it. That means that the, the oil companies, the car companies, the food producers, they have to think differently because otherwise they will lose money. And when they lose money, you have things, new inventions. Like you have stuff like Beyond Meats. You have stuff, uh, I mean, you have new ways of transportation. I mean, the last five years, there's been an explosion of electrical flights and takeoff and landing things and everything. And there's and there's been an explosion of plant-based food or lab-grown meat. I think we've just seen this resurgence because when consumers demand it, then suddenly people vote differently or people buy differently, vote with their dollars. And when they do, then companies move in that direction because either directly because people are buying it or indirectly because they think, oh no. So I think the crazy thing is, even if we all feel really underempowered, I think most many people wake up in the morning and feel horrible about the climate. There's three easy things. You can choose what to buy, you can choose where you work, and you can choose what you vote. And you have immense power. You can just tell everybody that, yeah, I'm not eating meat three days a week. And then, yeah, I'm going to figure out alternatives. Will it hurt the first six months? Yes, it will. If you sit in the restaurant with your friends and they're just ordering the pizza, yeah, you have to be the super silly person that says, oh, can I have one wheel of pepperoni? Because like, I'm not eating meat today. It's Monday to Wednesday. I don't eat meat. And your cool friends are going to go, oh, yeah, you're not eating meat. Like, no, I'm not. I'm not, actually. Uh, and that's, I think that's the thing, is that you just have to take the short-term pain to get to the long-term gain. Mm. What do you think... What is the agent of change that actually makes individuals change their behavior? Because we have seen for years and years books being released, documentaries being released, shocking images, yeah. people speaking up, and not much happens. So suddenly we see these movements happening. And I wonder, is it a, a combination of things? Is it Do we need leaders like Greta Thunberg who really embody something that people can identify with? What do you think? Yeah, I think that... Sadly, I think most we are most driven by stories. So I think the problem is, I think that if you show somebody the numbers, and I'll like walk you through the numbers of tomatoes, we grow 800 tons per hectare of tomatoes. Tomatoes are like super efficient. Like we've figured tomatoes out because they're so expensive. Grains, the bulk of what we eat, eight tons per hectare. Like we just suck. We grow grains as we did in the 15th century, but now we have mechanical horses. But tomatoes, we have figured out anything from gene modification to like greenhouses, processes, everything, because there's money in it. So the thing is, if I show you the numbers, then you would immediately, like, if you're like on the like autistic Asperger's spectrum, maybe even, and I'm get back to that, you will just say, well, we need to fix grains. The problem is that most of us, like if you look at the Syrian refugee movement, people, people are like, yeah, we need to do something. And then one day there was a picture of a child on the beach. And when you see a dead child on the beach, that's when you're just like, you're just heart bursts open. You're like, this is not okay. In climate, there is no dead child on the beach. So there's no story to connect us. So we all look at the numbers. We don't like being lectured at. So yeah. And it's like, it's fear mongering. It's shame. It's kind of tricky things for most of us to handle. So I think we like stories. So when you get a person like Greta Thunberg, that's amazing because suddenly there's a real person and I think getting back to what I said previously, I mean, Greta has been very open about that. She's on the Asperger spectrum. We are all on the Asperger spectrum, but like she's on the Asperger side of the Asperger spectrum. And I think it's almost ironic that some of the biggest climate people in the world are the people who absolutely have some kind of Asperger's diagnosis. I think they're the people who just look at this and say, oh, 
this isn't work. And then they just take the social pain of saying, okay, I'm not going to eat meat or I'm going to protest or I won't, I'm going to be the person who won't take cool pictures of the Maldives. And they know that that's going to make them uncool. That's going to make them not invited to certain things. And that hurts for most of us. But if you're in a, like have the amazing social ability of not being socially hurt, also known as Asperger's, that means that you just go, yeah, I'll just skip it. And I think it's such an irony that that's what you need today. You need to just say, I'll take the short-term social pain to get to collective, because again, there's no them, gain. And I think the problem with climate is like, there's no pee-free part of the pool. So it doesn't work that way. You can say, I'm doing my thing, but if everyone else pees in the pool, you're going to be standing in pee. So like, that's the thing, like we need to, like the only way to do that is to topple the leaders, like to make sure that countries, people cannot be elected by pointing at a group of people. Like they can't like point at Muslims, they can't point at immigrants, they can't point at anything and say, we don't need more people coming to the UK. Like, are you stupid? The UK, first of all, they colonized like 95% of all countries in the world. And now they're suddenly saying that they're a goddamn stupid sovereign nation, which is defined by a small nation border up in Europe. Like that's just like ignoring history. And the thing is like most of countries are built on people immigrating to them. The thing is most of the greatest countries in the world has been created by people who immigrated to that country. So it's just, there's no rationale. It's just because I want to be the leader of this country and the easiest story to sell is to point at somebody. And I think that's why we need people to come in and say, what? I'm sorry? Like, why not point at the real enemy, which is us having to change who we are? It's hard. It's really, really hard. And I think that we just have to stare at the fact and realize that we can get out of this. But we're going to need to, A, change some things we're going to do. Like flying for one party in San Francisco when you live in Europe. No. I mean, come on. Like, if somebody invites you to a wedding and it's not your closest friend and that's in San Francisco and you live in London, can't you just say, hey, man, can I dial in? Like, can't you just set up a screen? Like, I, I, I mean, I mean, I'm like your hundredth friend. So like, I'll, I'll dial in. It's going to be cool. Can you do like a Zoom and let people dial in and not fly? And no, that means that you get to sit down in your boring apartment and read a fiction book and hang out with your children and, and like your husband or wife. Horrible, right? Or that's amazing. But I think that we have to redefine that, that you cannot escape. And like escapism is not a way to get happy. It's a way to get unhappy. Life is not better just because you're on the other side of the planet. Life is better because you're on vacation. You can be on vacation home. You can be traveling in a fiction book. Much, much better than you can like be like get home again and think you hate your work. Secondly, I think we need to invest in the areas where we can get out of the problem. We need to invest in energy. We need to invest in food. We need to invest in industry. We need to invest in transportation. And I think that if we do that right, I think we can both reduce mass amounts of the emissions that we do every year, but we can also reverse. We can reverse so many things we do by sequestering a lot of the carbon in cement or in trees or sucking it down and making materials out of it. We can do this, but it requires us to invest in those areas. Fantastic. Nothing more to add. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Thank you, Hampus, for this super insightful conversation. If you are interested in hearing more from Hampus, Follow this guy on Twitter. His Twitter handle is Hjack, H-A-J-A-K. And I also highly recommend to check out the recap of a recent conference that Hampus and his team at Blue Yard organized, which is called the Manhattan Project for Climate Breakdown. It was a one-day conference where Hampus invited a ton of super insightful and smart speakers from all around the world to talk about what we just talked about. 
I also want to thank a bunch of people that contributed to this episode in a positive way, which is the conference in Malmö, Sweden, one of the best conferences I've ever attended and which with, with whom we cooperated this year to curate a track and a panel. Thank you, Cecilia, for inviting us. I also want to thank Nermin, part of the Co-Matter team who has helped uh, edit and uh, take notes from this episode. And all of you who listened to this conversation after many months of summer break on this podcast. If you have any feedback, thoughts, or recommendations, get in touch with me at severin at comatter.com. If you want to hear from us on a regular basis, feel free to subscribe to our mailing list at comatter.com slash mailing list. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. Hear you soon.